All right. If you want to make your way back to your seat. It's, it's been five weeks, so I don't know how this works. Do I wait for you? Do you? I don't know. It's good to see you guys. Let's go. There, there are uh, scenes that kind of bookend uh, the bulk of the action in Remember the Titans. Right as they arrive at camp at Gettysburg College uh, and, and kind of the height of racial tension, Coach Boone uh, at lunch one day tells the entire team that they are going to spend time with one another and get to know their teammates or else they'll do three-a-day practices or four-a-day practices. And the longer it goes, the more practices they'll put in until they begin to function uh, like they are a team, like they actually like each other. And then at the very end of the movie, uh, linebacker Gary Bertier is in the hospital. And Julius Campbell, uh, his linebacking uh, partner, shows up to visit him. And as he's walking into Gary Bertier's hotel room, the nurse turns around and says, I'm sorry, family only. And Gary, in kind of a strained voice, says, Alice, he's my brother. Can't you see the resemblance? <laughs> and it, it illustrates how far these Two individuals, but that entire team and really that entire community has come from the beginning of the movie all the way to the end of the movie. Something has transformed Gary and Julius, but also this entire team from being this sort of disparate, arguing, combative group into unified, loving, committed teammates. In their case, it was the grind of a high school football season. Sports have uh, a way of bonding people to one another, as do play productions or marching band seasons or whatever the case might be. When groups of people come together with a common understanding for a common cause and they're willing to invest and sacrifice toward that end, unity is typically the result. Within the church, there is something more than capable of taking us from being self-consumed, self-promoting, self-interested, sinful individuals and turning us into a loving and unified, humble body of Christ, a true family of believers. That thing is not the intensity of two-a-day sermons. I'm interested. I don't ever have enough time up here. What unites believers is something so much greater than multiple practices a day or the heat of training camp or burpees and conditioning or close games or whatever the case might be. And therefore, it should create a unity that's so much greater than what you would experience on a sports team or so much greater than what you would experience in a, in a band or in a play or at your workplace. 
That thing is grace. What we're going to take a look at this morning is exactly how that plays itself out in the life of a church. Because grace transforms an attitude of entertainment into a spirit of investment. Grace transforms a heart of consumption into a heart of commitment and contribution. Uh, I think Kurt used that one last week. Yeah, we'll go without slides if they're not in there. You can, you can just hang out back there, Susan. Grace transforms a heart of consumption into a heart of commitment and contribution. We're going to see that by looking at Acts 2, 42 to 47. When people talk about the church, they typically look at this particular passage in Acts. I want to make a couple of statements before we really get into it, though. What Acts 2, 42 to 47 does is it offers a descriptive picture of the life of the early church. Is it instructive? Absolutely. Is it completely prescriptive in that it tells us exactly how it is within a body of believers or a local church that everything is supposed to function? Not necessarily. It's a summary statement of what the initial church in Jerusalem looked like. A summary, which means when it talks about everyone being together, was every single person present every single time the church got together every day? No, probably not. But enough people were present that it is absolutely true that they could make the statement that everyone was together. It's descriptive, it's instructive, but it doesn't answer all of our questions about exactly how a church should function. How long should the worship service be? How long should we be together at any given time? How frequently do we meet? What style of teaching or preaching? What should the music sound like? It's not prescriptive in that sort of way. It's descriptive. It's instructive. It's a summary. It illuminates for us. What we're doing this year is that we're walking through what a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is. We're spending the bulk of our time in the book of Romans, Because Romans is showing us what it means to be gospel-centered individuals. That the defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus is a belief in the truth of the gospel message. When we talk about the gospel, this is what we mean. That Jesus Christ died as the atoning sacrifice for the sin of humanity. That he was raised to life in triumph over sin and death so that all who believe in him are forgiven of their sin and made righteous before God. To live a gospel-centered life means that that gospel message forms the core of our understanding of who God is and how we are to engage in all of life's situations. Gospel-centeredness could be stated another way, as grace-reliance. A follower of Jesus is grace-reliant, and that goes beyond just our salvation, Grace absolutely saves us. That's what it is to be gospel-centered. We are eternally saved by grace. It is unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted, unasked for. In our own sin, we would not have asked for Jesus Christ to die on our behalf. That is how big grace is in saving us. He did it anyway, despite no one in all of humanity asking for it to happen. Grace saves us. 
To be mission-driven, which is something that we talked about a number of months ago, means that grace compels us. That the message of this unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted, unasked-for grace is so compelling to us that we realize that not only is it true for me, but it's true for the person sitting next to you right now, maybe a family member. It's true for the stranger across the room, for the person down the hall at work, for your child's teacher, for you as a coach, for all the kids on your team. It's true for the person that lives in another country on another continent and looks different and talks different and acts different. It's true for that person too. And the message of grace is so great that it compels us to go to them with the message. We're mission-driven. Grace compels us. We pursue holiness because grace transforms us. If mission-driven is this outward expression of the power of grace, to be pursuing holiness is an inward picture of the power of grace. And right now we're in the middle of walking through what does it mean as devoted followers of Jesus Christ to be humbly unified, that grace unifies us. Grace is powerful to save us eternally. It's powerful to compel us outwardly, to force us into sort of inward transformation. Grace is powerful inwardly, but it's also powerful corporately. That's what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, and it's what we're going to finish talking about this morning. And then shortly after the first of the year, we'll see that a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is disciple-making, that grace sustains us, that it's powerful temporally in our everyday lives and our interactions with one another. Let me just read Acts 2, 42 to 47. This is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the, or through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let me give you the quick context of this in Acts. This, the Holy Spirit has fallen on the apostles at Pentecost and empowered by that spirit, they were faithful to preach the word. That's the bulk of what Acts chapter two is. And at the end of that, we're told in Acts 2.41 that those who accepted the message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to their number. It's the grace of the gospel proclaimed from scripture that formed this church. It's the grace of the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit that empowers this church. And it is the grace of the gospel that grows this church. Luke, the author of Acts, then gives us that summary statement of how this church functioned. I don't want to play semantic games, but the word devoted is really important. These initial Christ followers weren't passively interested in one another. They weren't kind of curious about scripture or absent-mindedly present when the church got together so long as it fit their schedule. They were devoted why is it that at Liberty Christian Fellowship we want to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ? Because that's what scripture shows us it is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus and not be devoted would be antithetical to what it means to actually follow Christ. 
if you were to just pull open your dictionary.com uh, app, or am I the only one that's got dictionary.com app? Probably. I work with words. If you were to go to dictionary.com, this is what it would tell you devoted means. Zealous or ardent in attachment, loyalty or affection. The actual Greek word here for devoted in Acts 2.42 means to persevere and not grow faint or to give constant attention. They, the early church, gave constant attention to the apostles' teaching, constant attention to the fellowship, constant attention to the breaking of bread, constant attention to prayer. I was trying to think of something in our lives that we give constant attention to, and the only thing I could come up with was hunger. Is there anything else you're constantly gauging in your life other than when do I get to put more food in? That's about the only thing that runs in your brain all the time, that you would give constant attention and not grow faint in trying to figure out when should I eat again. This says that the early church was giving constant attention to their very body. And this plays out in a number of ways. The first here says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There was a devotion to the word of God. They were devoted to scripture. That's what the apostles are teaching. The early church wanted to hear the truth of God's word read. They wanted to hear it explained. They wanted to hear it taught and unpacked and applied. There's a devotion to the word. They sought to grow in their understanding of scripture. But to be devoted to the word means more than just wanting to listen to it. And the rest of this passage plays some of that out for us. To be devoted to the word means that there is a visible, obedient faith that plays out in your life. Verse 47 says that they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. As the grace of God transforms us internally, it has external ramifications. It impacts the way we live in the world around us and therefore the way the world around us sees us and views us. The life of these early followers of Jesus were so transformed by the grace of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit that the way they conducted themselves was captivating to those around them. In the mid-300s AD, Emperor Julian tried to stop the spread of Christianity. In fact, his persecution was very, very intense. And through that, the church continued to grow. He said the reason for its growth was because of the conduct of the follower of Jesus, of the followers of Jesus. Quote, the pious Galileans, that was his way of describing these Christians, not only feed their own poor, but ours as well, welcoming them into their love. They attract them as children who are attracted with cakes. The life of early believers was so sweet that it was attractive to the world. To be devoted to the word means to persevere in being transformed into joyfully obedient followers of Christ. To not just listen to the word of God, but to actually allow the word of God to impact how it is that we live, the way that we think, the decisions that we make, how we conduct ourselves with the people around us. But being devoted to the word also means that there's vocal intentional outreach. The very last phrase of our passage this morning, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. 
Salvation is the Lord's work. He adds to their number. Saving people is a matter of his grace, but he uses ordinary means in order to do so. He uses the faithful proclamation of the gospel from the lips of his followers. Grace has brought you into Christ. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have been brought into him. Romans chapter 5. And you've been brought into the body of Christ. And now as Christians, we exist in Christ for the sake of the world. Sometimes you'll hear people say that as Christians, we are in the world for Christ. We are in Christ for the world. There's a significant difference in those two things. You've been brought in. And to be devoted to the word means to persevere, to give constant attention to proclaiming the word of God, to proclaiming the gospel. This is the visible expression of being mission-driven. We've spent a lot of time on that. And so over the course of this Romans series, uh, if you're curious about whether or not we should be sharing the gospel message, you've maybe been napping on Sunday mornings. Devotion to the word. We're also told that they were devoted to the fellowship. There was a devotion to one another. They were devoted to relationship. There are 59 one another statements in the New Testament that are to outline or dictate how it is that the church interacts with itself as a body. We're told to love one another, to outdo one another in showing honor, to instruct one another, confess to one another, submit to one another, to consider one another more important than ourselves, to encourage one another, not to lie to one another, to watch out for one another, and 50 more. The summary of the suburban American church is probably more that it tolerates one another, kind of, sort of recognizes one another, coexists with one another, puts up with one another. The summary of the early church was that they were devoted to one another. And Acts 2 goes on to give us a few insights into what this kind of devotion and unity looks like. There was regular interaction. Verse 44, now all the believers were together. A healthy, humbly unified church is absolutely concerned about its interactions with those outside the church, but it's also committed to being together as a church. Does this mean that all 3,000 people were always together in perfect attendance every single time? The pastor in me wants to think so, but reality is that they probably weren't. What it does mean is that when the church gathered, a large, large portion of the group was there so as to make this statement true. Two weeks ago, T.A. talked about the fact that we should not neglect being together. I think oftentimes this is how we function as a church body. We come in on Sunday morning and we look around and we see that roughly the same number of people are present this Sunday as were present last Sunday. And that must be good. Imagine you've got a family of six. You sit down to dinner at the dinner table. Six people are present. Little Johnny's gone, and some strange man is sitting in his seat, but we've still got six, so everything must be fine. That's not being devoted to one another. That's being devoted to the, the appearance of fullness, which is oftentimes how local 
churches operate. It looks about the same. I don't care if that church has one service or 11 services. Most of us just come in and kind of real quick take a look around the room and say, seems like everybody's here. Well, the reality is that so-and-so, some couple maybe has been gone for a month. And yeah, someone else visited and filled their seat. And so it looked like everybody was there. But if we were really dedicated to regular interaction with one another, it would trigger something in our minds that somebody's not here and they haven't been here. And I just love interacting with them because we're part of the church. So I'm going to check on them. Guys, one of the most wonderful things about the last month is that I just got cards and text messages from you guys. I was gone intentionally. It wasn't that something tragic happened in my life and I was gone because I was tending to something else. It wasn't that something forced me to be away. I stepped away intentionally. And yes, I'm the pastor and I announced it to the whole congregation and everybody knew, but you reached out. And it, it was so encouraging to my wife and I. I'm gonna single out a family uh, and they don't know I'm gonna do this, but the Lawson family sent Melody and I a card every week. Do you do that for other people? The Lawsons nodded their head, yes, I don't doubt that. (laughs) I was talking to everybody else. Regular interaction. It's not just that the room's full, that the table's full. The question is whether or not the family is present. You can't be devoted to the body and not long to interact with its members. It's totally impossible. Devotion to one another includes radical generosity. We're told in the second half of verse 44 in the And then verse 45, that they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. I gave myself a bunch of warm-up ones of these before I got to this one. This isn't some form of like communism, right? They had possessions or else they couldn't sell them. Their attitude toward their possessions was radically different than what is normative today. The early church owned their possessions. They weren't owned by them. The early church mastered their possessions. They weren't mastered by them. The early church leveraged their possessions for the sake of life, eternal life. They didn't leverage their life for the sake of possessions. The early church didn't think about their generosity in terms of how much do I have to give. They looked at their stuff and they said, how much do I have to give? They prioritized the needs of the gospel or the needs of those within their body above their own wants for materialistic things. Regenerate people are generous people it would be impossible to be otherwise. This means that the church gives freely, not under compulsion. The church gives sacrificially. The question is not how much of my money am I forced to give or how much of my time or my abilities, 
but how much can I justify hoarding for myself? The church gives generously. The motivation is not one of angry submission, but of joyful opportunity. And the church gives in response to what Jesus gave. We give because Christ gave himself for us. We give because the Father gave the Son for us. We give because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And so we give to the church as the vehicle through which the gospel goes out in this community and to the ends of the earth. We give to those within the church because just as grace flows out of this place, it also flows within this place. And that requires a certain sensitivity that you're aware that somebody else in this body has a need. The person that sits on this side of the sanctuary isn't just some stranger that sits over there. It's a human being who has needs and vice versa. And there are people, this side of the room, on that side of the room, who have real needs. And you might be the one who has the ability to meet that need. I'm not just talking about financially. You can give your skills and be generous with your talents. Look, I can't fix anything on my car. If you're good with cars, be generous. (laughs) I can't fix anything on my house either, just throwing that out there. But there are a lot of people, you can be generous with your skills. You can be generous with your words. People in the back, there are people up front here today who might have come in starving for some encouragement. The week was brutally difficult. And you walked in and you slid into the back and you thought, I'm present at church, that's gotta be enough. No, Jesus didn't save you so that you could go to a thing on Sunday mornings. He saved you to be a part of something. He saved you and you're going to go to heaven. You go to church along the way because it's a blessing and a privilege to be able to do so. And now you be generous with one another. You be generous toward the church. Not how much money does the Bible tell me that I have to give, but you look around and you say to yourself, how much of this can I justify keeping? In light of the gospel, in light of the need for the gospel to reach the nations, in light of the needs of the people within my own congregation, how much can I justify hoarding for myself? The answer for all of us, myself included, is much less than we try to. Radical generosity. I don't know where I am on my notes. All right. (laughs) Devotion to one another requires repeated gatherings. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. When the church got together to pray or to worship or to hear the word of God preached, the church got together. Not just a couple of people, not just 60% of the people. I think the most recent Barna study said that in terms of like people who are on the rolls or members at a church on any given Sunday morning, like 42% show up. They met together in large groups. They got together in small groups. They met together in the temple courts. They met together in their homes. They gathered around the altar. They gathered around dinner tables. It wasn't an obligation. It was a joy. It was a privilege. It was a desire. And they were devoted to it. They gave constant attention to it. An hour or an hour and a half on Sunday mornings? Absolutely. Why would I want to miss that? Why wouldn't I want to be part of the body? I'm not going to pump our programs here. But when we offer something as a church, we do so because we think it's a great chance for us to be together and a great chance for us to worship together and to learn together. Look, our staff is not sitting around in the office cooking up ways to be busier. 
What we do is that we're looking for opportunities for us to be together as a church in meaningful, spiritually impactful ways. To be humbly unified is to be devoted to one another. Regular interaction, radical generosity, repeated gatherings. And then one last kind of area here. That to be humbly unified means that we're devoted to worship. I've grouped a few of these last remaining items underneath this heading. And let me clarify what I mean here. I don't mean that the early followers of Jesus were devoted to worship services. They were. We just talked about that. Here, what I mean is that they were devoted to lives of worship. They were Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of people. They put their entire lives holistically every day up there on the altar and said, this is my sacrifice. Here I am. This is my spiritual act of worship. And that played itself out in a number of ways. The end of verse 42 says that they were devoted to prayer. I'm going to read this directly from uh, a commentator on the book of Acts because he says it better and more succinctly than I probably could. He says that the church practiced both free and formal times of prayer. If we just look at the book of Acts, the believers prayed together corporately. They prayed personally. They prayed in the temple, in homes, as they walked along the road, as they encountered the sick and afflicted, before they preached sermons, before they heard sermons, while they were being persecuted, in planned times of intense intercession over particular situations, as they offered thanks for their food and provision, as they gave thanks to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, as they praised God in song, and as they offered up petitions to the Father to meet their daily needs. All of this reminds us that a healthy church is a praying church. Let me make a few comments. The humbly of being humbly unified works in two directions. We're humble before one another. According to Philippians chapter two, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but instead considering others more important than ourselves. We're humble before each other. But we're humble before the Lord as well, recognizing his infinite greatness in comparison to our finite smallness. Nothing screams louder regarding our lack of humility than an empty prayer life. Nothing screams louder regarding our lack of humility than an empty prayer life. Nothing functionally says, I don't need this whole grace thing more than a life that lacks prayer. It says that we think we're the means by which our provision or protection comes, that we're ultimately the ones that we look to for wisdom and understanding, that I'm the one that is due the praise and thanks that's due for all the blessings in my life. A church that is humbly unified is one that commits itself to prayer on behalf of the church's health, the church's growth, both spiritually and numerically, the church's leadership, the church's protection, the church's preaching, the church's services, the church's programs, the church's people. Pastorally, if you allow me, I want to give two challenges here before we move on. There are people available to pray at the end of our services every single week. They're there to pray for what the Lord might have been doing in you during our time together and what he might be doing in your life in general. We point them out every Sunday at the end of our service, over there underneath the exit sign, my left, your right. Very few people take advantage of that, which leaves me to ask two questions. Is there nothing going on in the life of our congregation? I have a hard time believing that. Or do we have a humility problem? that we're not willing to get before another person and ultimately before the Lord and say, God, I have these needs. And the only place I have to go with those needs is to the giver of all things. 
Second challenge, there's a group of people who meets at 8 a.m. on Sunday mornings before first service to pray over our gatherings. Based on people's availability, that group uh, is sometimes larger. This morning, it was three people. If you're interested, come and join us. Or if first service isn't your normal time and being here at like 8 a.m. just sounds very difficult, maybe you want to offer up a different time to pray before one of our other services. A humbly unified church and a humbly unified follower of Jesus is devoted to prayer. They were also devoted to breaking bread. That's kind of in the middle of verse 42 there. It also appears in verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. This is in relation both to just kind of generally sharing meals together, but more specifically, it's about taking communion with one another. Why would they devote themselves? Why would they give constant attention to that? Because taking communion gives us a visible reminder of God's saving grace. It forces us to consider whether we need to seek reconciliation with another brother or sister. It gives us time to reflect on sin in our lives and where we need to repent. Communion puts grace right in front of your eyes. They were devoted to it. They didn't just passively partake when it was time on the given Sunday morning. They were zealous and ardent in their affection toward it. You've got a couple people from your small group who come over for dinner one night. You can take communion there. You're gathered together. Remember Christ. Remember grace with one another. We'll talk about that more here in just a couple minutes. And then the final one. Verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. There was a general spirit of awe and praise among this church. When this kind of unity and fellowship and activity permeates a church, God is going to do some stuff. But not only is he going to do some stuff, we'll be attuned to it. We'll see it. We'll know it. We won't be able to miss the wonders that he does among us, the transformation he brings into people's lives, the believers that are added and baptized, the expanse of the gospel that takes place among the nations, the acts of sacrifice that take place within our own local church, the healing he is working in the pain that people face, the blessings he's bringing and the joy that people experience. And in our humility, awe and praise will be what flows from us. There's the summary of the early church. But those things aren't necessarily the hows of being humbly unified. They are symptoms of the how. The underlining, driving how of being humbly unified is that grace unifies us. It is only grace that can take us from being self-consumed, self-promoting, self-interested, sinful individuals and unite us as a loving and humble body of Christ, as a family of believers. Grace transforms a heart of consumption into a heart of commitment and contribution. I want us to visibly remember this grace this morning. And so we're going to take communion again today. If you said you were going to help us pass out, if you would come up and, and grab this. If your view of grace is one that is just large enough to save you, but not large enough to unify you with your brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not sure you've actually understood grace. While these are being passed out, if you need uh, gluten-free 
little wafer to take communion there in the middle of the tray. If you don't need gluten-free, just take a stack of two cups. The juice is on top, the bread, the wafer is underneath. Grace helps us see that the same Jesus who loves and died to save me loves and died to save the person on the other side of the room as well, which means that the same Jesus that is infinitely patient with me and my sin is equally so with the rest of those in the body. Grace is what compels us to share the gospel with our words and what transforms us to live lives that mirror the gospel in our actions. Grace is what helps us see that we're united in Christ and therefore have been brought together as a family that should long to be with one another, to give to one another, to gather with one another. Grace is what drives us to worship, to pray, to break bread, and to live in awe of what God is doing in and among us. The how of humbly unified plays itself out in a myriad of ways, but the true unifier is grace. Grace Grace, grace. We're going to celebrate and remember that grace by taking communion this morning. And rather than kind of gathering together and doing this um, as families, which is totally fine, we're going to take it all together here as one body. We'll do this in each one of our services. So kind of wait for those to make their way around the room. While we do, I want to just kind of encourage you, take a moment. One of the things Kurt talked about last week is that we don't rush into breaking bread with one another in a way uh, that neglects the fact that we might have broken or severed relationship with someone else in the room. We don't rush into communion and not consider our own sin. So let's take about a minute here in silence and in prayer individually before the Lord. Lord, your grace to us is unfathomably great. God, that though we were undeserving, that we could not do anything to merit it, God, that we would not ever have asked for it, you gave your son to die for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died. God, your grace is not just sufficiently, but overwhelmingly powerful to save. All those who've placed their faith in you, Lord, will have eternal right standing before you thanks to your grace shown to us in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, but your grace does even more than that. Your grace compels us to share the message of the gospel. It transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ and it unifies us into one beautifully diverse and yet fully unified body of believers. God, I pray that as we take communion, Lord, we would see grace in front of us. Lord, that every time we take this bread and this juice, we would be 
reminded of the grace of Christ in his broken body, in his poured out blood for the salvation of all who believe in him. God, that we would be reminded that we've been graciously brought into the family of Christ and now we stand shoulder to shoulder as brothers and sisters who long to do nothing more than make you known and to worship and to praise you, Lord, and to look forward to the day where we will stand shoulder to shoulder at the foot of the throne in heaven. God, would your grace unify not just this local body of believers, Lord, but would your grace unify your big C church the world over. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And now as one church, let's come to the altar in worship and praise of a glorious and gracious God.